Welcome to the Binge Essentials Podcast. I'm your host, David Rocha, and joining me as always, fresh from Cherokee City, is Romeo Mora. Romeo, how's it going? Not bad. Just wrapped up the unusual investigation, like I always do, which is kind of a theme with me. Basically, I'm slowly turning into one of the Scooby-Doo gang. That's your job of the show, right? You're an on-site investigator. You know, you've been all over the country, all over the globe, really. This is true. <laughs> well, speaking of unusual investigations, today we're going to be talking about The Outsider. The Outsider is an American psychological thriller, horror, crime drama television series based on the 2018 novel of the same name by Stephen King. It premiered on HBO on January 12th, 2020. The Outsider begins with a seemingly straightforward investigation into the gruesome murder of a young boy. But when an insidious supernatural force edges its way into the case, it leads a seasoned cop and an unorthodox investigator to question everything they believe in. The miniseries stars Ben Mendelsohn, Cynthia Erivo, Bill Camp, Patty Considine, Julianne Nicholson, and Jason Bateman. Joining us to talk about The Outsider is Kelly Rellis. Kelly, how's it going? Great, guys. Thanks to having me back on. Well, we're so happy that you're back. And I had to do extensive research to make sure this show wasn't coming back. By all intents and purposes, HBO is like, we have no plans of continuing The Outsider. With all that being said, Kelly, why did you want to talk about The Outsider? This was a show that caught me off guard completely. I knew nothing about it going into it, which is usually the best for me, some of the best surprises. It was um, recommended to me by someone and I knew nothing about it except that it was on HBO and that it was new. And then it was mentioned Jason Bateman. And I love Jason Bateman. So I was already I was already in. I think if I had known more going into the show, I may have avoided it, but I'm glad that I didn't. And so starting to watch it, it hooked me. This is one of those mini series that you're going to be talking about forever with people and anytime that you start a conversation with someone else who has watched it you're gonna have plenty to say and it was just a great great miniseries yeah i'm more or less on the same boat as you when i heard about it i thought interesting i always proceed with caution when it comes to anything stephen king related in terms of adaptations for television i remember seeing a lot of weird made for tv movies based off of stephen king novels in the early 90s, 90s. <laughs> yeah 90s era yeah including the shining to which he says is the better version of the two because it actually stays truer to the source material and that's my first lesson as a child where it's like maybe we don't have to stick so close to the source material when adapting something but on the same boat as you whereas like when I heard about the show was being made I heard that it was going to have Jason Bateman I've always been a fan of Jason Bateman since the rest of development but the thing that I've really enjoyed about Jason Bateman is his dramatic work like I don't know if you ever seen The Gift with yes. uh, Joel Edgerton yeah he's so that was the first time where I saw his dramatic child and I thought, oh, this guy has something like this guy. He's got some real potential here to be this not like a sinister person in everything he's in, but he certainly has the potential to be a great dramatic actor. And then we see it in Ozark. We also later on see it in um, in here as as like a, as a supernatural force in The Outsider. I've always been a fan of his and I've also been a fan of his directorial work on Ozark. And then in these first two episodes in The Outsider. Yeah, when I heard Jason Bateman's name, I was totally on board. And then I heard Ben Mendelsohn, who I'm a big fan of Cynthia Erivo, who I saw initially on Bad Times at the El Royale, loved her in that. And then I had Bill Camp, who I liked in The Night Of. It established itself as having like all these really great performers. And then that's what drew me in to watch the show. And yeah, and I just really enjoy myself watching it. So when we get to that pilot, what was it about the pilot that got you hooked? The mystery and intrigue from the very beginning. There was an interview with Jason Bateman, and he mentioned, you know, since he directed the first couple episodes, that this is Stephen King esque. 
but it's less about the horror aspect and more about the dread. And that was spot on for me. I feel like the entire first episode, you're just dreading what you want answers, but you don't want the answers at the same time because you have no idea what they could be. But the whole crime and mystery, and it was very raw and just in your face from the very beginning. And you knew that this was going to be something that was going to hook you for every scene, really. Anytime there's anything murder involved on top of that, any murder mystery, it's going to be something that catches your attention. Or at least me, I'm into that. For me, the pilot... It wasn't my favorite of the episodes. Because going in, I knew this was typical Stephen King, and I knew they were going to do the bait and switch where they're going to present straightforward crime or an instance, and then things won't kick off until like a third episode. So yeah, it was intriguing that there were clues, but obviously I knew the real story won't hit into gear until the third or fourth episode, where some of the main characters will begrudgingly acknowledge that there's something supernatural going on. It has strong performances. I mean, Jason Bateman, and of course, um, Julianne Nicholson, who I love from Law and Order. Those two, like, got me through the first few episodes until, of course, we met the fabulous Holly Gibney. It almost feels like a two-part pilot, it, doesn't it? It feels like a different show compared to the rest of the series. Because Jason Bateman, like I mentioned earlier, he does have a very, he almost has his own touch of directing. You see a lot of slow pan shots, how he's able to sort of just build that dread. You don't know what's coming out of every corner like when Bateman's walking out of the forest and he's just like drenched in blood and you're like holy crap <laughs> what is that about I think maybe not knowing was to my benefit because mm-hmm. you guys mentioned you knew a lot of the cast and I really didn't Jason Bateman Julian Nicholson a little bit but for the most part they were all fairly new to me I had never seen Ben Mendelsohn I had never seen Cynthia Erivo and I don't watch a lot of Stephen King I've watched The Shining and I enjoy it for what it is and appreciate it. But in general, I'm not a fan of the horror genre. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't expect the bait and switch or anything, the Bateman switch. <laughs> so maybe, maybe I didn't pick up on, you know, the nuances that you guys are because I was just going in clean and I was not thinking about the subtleties because I was just hooked from him walking out with a bloody mouth, <laughs> you know, in the first yeah. episode. I was just going to say the relationship between Ben Mendelsohn and Jason Bateman, mm-hmm. Ralph Anderson and Terry Maitland in the pilot was just immediate hook for me as well. They are fantastic actors and their relationship Mm -hmm. was fantastic and the tension that was built under this high stakes child murder. I thought it was a great first episode, especially for people not knowing what they're going to get themselves into. The other thing about how, maybe Romeo how he commented how the two episodes feel like a totally different series and that's because the way the episodes are cut are very different. You are jumping around in time, piecing together how the investigation went into uncovering how they landed on Terry Maitland being the top suspect for the murder. And I thought that was actually a really cool way to tell the story. Kind of does this throughout the series. There's not a lot of spoon feeding. There's a lot of contextual clues that they show you and and that you, you see it and it's best to remember it because it is going to come back later. And it's not doing that thing that a lot of TV shows have the mistake of doing to me where they like zoom in on this thing because they absolutely 100% need you to remember it. Or there's like this quick cut to the thing of them doing the thing and you're just like oh that's gonna come back isn't it tv shows do that all the time and it drives me nuts but this one it's like no everything remains subtle it's all there right in front of you you just have to be like the detective and remember it and piece it together later on as the series goes it is like that 
old school detective storytelling. I mean, it reminds me of Columbo, where he mentioned something and you better fucking remember it because <laughs> Columbo isn't going to stop for nobody. It's going to solve that case. I and mean, if you get lost, you get lost. Because we talked about it when I was taking phone classes. And the reason they do that is because our attention spans. And this is the beginning of the 2000s that are just so low that we most people can't focus on the minute little details. And I'm sure it's gotten worse now with TikTok and all the other social media apps that demand only what 60 seconds of your attention for you to move on to the next fascinating thing. It was kind of refreshing that you're made to actually pay attention. You can't sleep one second on this show. If you don't, guess what? You're rewatching that. You're going to have to rewatch that episode to see what you missed. I found myself doing that sometimes where something would happen and then I'd have to like pause it because I'm like, wait, 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 wait. When did he go and do that? Wait, when did she get the thing? And I'm like rewinding <laughs> to try and find the moment. So you're right. You can't sleep on it and you have to be captivated the whole time because you're going to miss the step for the next thing that's going to happen, the setup. Which is probably a reason why this wasn't all over social media, at least I can recall, because it was one of those things where there were great quotes, but they weren't memeable. For something that you need to pay closely attention, can you do anything else? I felt like possibly to turn a lot of people that weren't used to have things spoon fed to them. I think it was also, this was a very intellectual show, really, very philosophical, the element of death, how we see death, you know, the supernatural element, but in a different Mm -hmm. way, it wasn't just like angels and demons and things. It was folklore, it was culture, it was so much, you know, wrapped up in this. Everything was almost like um, spherical in this world Mm -hmm. instead of just like one straight way. Everything was so Mm -hmm. interconnected and everyone was interconnected even in ways you didn't know. So it's kind of hard to do that with a mystery because it wasn't just let's solve this murder. It's let's figure out how we feel about everything that we're doing. I think people have a tendency to get turned off by slow burn shows like this. Sure. There's not a lot of holy shit moments. I mean, it, it has its fans, sure. But it, yeah, it just didn't turn into like this huge phenomenon like, say, True Detective did. What but it I thought you. True Detective was very slow burn compared to this. This at least got you bang in the buck. You got a dead kid with bite marks all over him in the first five minutes. So like, you know, True I Detective, agree. I felt the first season of True Detective different, but the last few have been very slow burn with not a lot of payout where this one does give you a bit of payout in the beginning. And then you got to wait in the middle, but you're invested by that point. And they had a lot of people all over the spectrum, the believers, the non-believers, the people that were conflicted in the middle, but they also had people kind of like change over time too. Like they believed Mm -hmm. it, but they were scared of it. So it was interesting to have all natural reactions and the spectrum of all the natural reactions or waves of emotion that one would encounter on their journey of having to deal with this. And that might be my favorite part of the series, honestly. And I think now is a good time to maybe get into some of these main characters. Uh, Kelly, is there any character that you would like to start with? I know they're all great. So (laughs) I guess I'll start with uh, Ralph because he's kind of that chip off the shoulder, tough guy, you know, been through trauma in his life and then having to deal with doing his job as a policeman or detective while also going through this unresolved trauma within his life with his family, losing his son and 
also with having a loving his wife, but obviously their relationship seems to be taking on something different because of the trauma. Yeah, he was fascinating to me because he was so grounded and so real. I could see him in so many people of real life of wanting to be sensitive, but not wanting to let yourself be sensitive, wanting to do your job, but conflicted with what that brings. I thought he was excellently cast. That's a very good point you said about seeing him and a lot of people that you would know in real life because I saw some of myself, a lot of myself and Ralph just being that person where it's like, this doesn't make sense. There has to be a logical explanation mm-hmm. for it. Psychics? What? Anything supernatural? Like what? That's crazy talk. He's so overwhelmingly grounded and he is that way for like what? Seven, eight episodes? Even when they mm-hmm. get to Claude's brother's home, even then, even his car ride with Holly going up there, he's still holding on that there has to be mm-hmm. a reasonable explanation for all of this. That's an interesting choice because shows like this, it's like, okay, well, something crazy happened to them. So they're all in like by the mid season. But for him, it's like, no, eight or nine, episode eight or nine, he's still struggling with it. And yeah, he does carry the death of his son a lot, who I learned mm-hmm. uh, was not dead in the book. This is something that they added oh. for the series. Yeah, I think Richard Price said something so that they could um, make him a little more driven into trying to understand how this insanely brutal murder could happen. Like, I think part of him felt like he needed to solve this case so that he could somehow use it as an excuse to kind of come to terms with the death of his son. Yeah, And, you know, he even asked Terry a couple times, like, did you touch my son? I love the character. I think there was a lot more there than I originally expected. And even by series end, I still like where we leave him really good. He seemed to be on better terms uh, with the death of his son. He does seem happier. I will say that. Like, as Holly is like, what else is out there? And she just kind of mm-hmm. smiles and just like, don't don't worry about it, dude. Uh, I think yeah. that was such a smart choice to have his son die in the series because it made him so much more sympathetic and relatable, yes. so much more driven. You understood why he was so invested in what was happening and also gave him a break when he was being a jerk and a tough guy because you knew where he he was coming from. And it also made his desire to stay grounded and not believe in something holding on for dear life and seeing him be vulnerable and how scary it is to be vulnerable. I think it made it all the more realistic. And one more thing I thought was interesting at the end of the series and in the series finale was that him and his wife go to their son's grave like they typically do. And Mm -hmm. I noticed that I'm pretty sure it was his hand. I don't think it was her hand. Did the sign of the cross on his gravestone. And I thought to myself, oh, is he religious? Has he been religious this whole time? And just like, but then it makes me wonder, well, how religious is he? Because as we saw with the GBI lieutenants, Sablo, who seemed a lot more religious and and kind of Mm -hmm. believed in the faith and everything. We even even see him do the sign of the cross at one point. We don't get any indication that Ralph is religious at all. So it it did make me think, I wonder what was the choice behind that to make him do the sign of the cross. Maybe he just that's just how he was raised and he just kind of carries it over uh, like some people do. Like he's not actually actively practicing being religious, but it's just something I caught when I watched it this morning that I thought was a little interesting. I missed that. 
I yeah. like that. Maybe that that is more of a way of softening him and him letting go of him allowing himself to believe in things that are not black and white because he entered this world and went through this experience. And before he's just like death is death and that's what you got to live with. And now he's more open to my son's soul is out there and there are so many unexplained things. Romeo, do you have any thoughts on Ralph? Ralph's an interesting character. Sometimes frustrating um, because I feel like we can't talk about him without talking about Jeannie, his wife, who is pretty much along with Holly, the conduit to opening up his mind. Because I think there are a lot of people that need to have everything in the world make sense. And we sort of see this where not so much falls apart, but he just can't fathom. And and I believe that the best to illustrate that is with the loss of his son in which he became an alcoholic to deal with that loss. And I think part of his sobriety is making sure that everything makes sense in the world. It was an interesting journey for him open up again. But I love the fact that there was this great scene in the dining room. It was a big confrontation between him and Holly after, I forgot, I think it was about... They had the drawings of this thing. That's right. Thing, um, right, yeah. and it went along with Holly's theory, and he had kind of kept that from her. That's right. And then there's this great moment where Jeannie just looks at Ralph and goes, either you get on board or you get out of the way, because right now you're stopping the investigation. Which I'm sure that sort of mirrored that moment when Ralph him himself had to become sober. Like that moment where he needs to work through the trauma again in order to get on board for him to finally accept, okay, maybe not everything can be taken at face value. And not to mention the guilt he's carrying over Terry's death. At this point, he's coming to realize that they all, including the DA, made a rash to judgment on Terry's guilt. And it's not so much of that he did it, it's how he did it. Arresting him in front of hundreds of people at a Little League game and just like completely ruining their lives because of it. Yeah, he definitely felt that and carried that guilt. I think he mentions that it's personal, that he says, let's do this in front of everyone he knows so everyone can see what a slime ball this guy is. I think Mm -hmm. it was, and he even said, I'm not going to do it because then Mm -hmm. there'll be a lawsuit. So let's find a way for you guys to do it. And we can still ruin this guy's life in front of everybody. But that way, there's not some kind of conflict of interest that would render him not be able to stand Mm -hmm. trial or something. Also, that scene, uh, Romeo, you mentioned with Holly and his wife, the sketch drawings, and also with the fact that Jeannie had the moment with, I'm just going to call him the outsider. And Ralph more or less brushes it off. He calls it a dream, said there was Mm -hmm. no indentations on the floor from the chair. But when you do the blacklight, guess what you find? You find something that is definitely a trail that tells you that it was there. She got pissed. And she even told him, it's like, no, you don't get to do that after, after all of this. Like, you don't get to make excuses of what it could be or why you didn't do this it's like and like you said um yeah he was totally stunting the investigation because he couldn't open up his mind Mm -hmm. to the possibility of something supernatural that scene pissed me off i was calling people i know and i'm like i know that i can get emotional and crazy but i'm an adult and i'm a woman and i know (laughs) what happens to me in my life i know the difference between a dream and reality so if i call you and tell you the boogeyman was in my house you best believe there was a boogeyman in my house and don't you tell me (laughs) otherwise no so if my husband ever tells me I'm dreaming when something happened it riled me up and I knew it was more a reflection of he didn't want to believe but I was like are you kidding me her feet are all bloody you think she's just gonna walk on glass and then go to bed like nothing
something? See, this is where I, where I think she excels. You're confronted with the supernatural, but then there's also a plausible explanation why this happens. And when they have that honest conversation with each other between Tinjini and Ralph, Ralph says, you know, when Derek died, you were taking medication and it caused you to sleepwalk. And she goes, but I'm not on those medications. But Ralph says, but sometimes you still sleepwalk and I find you. It was this thing where I don't think he was purposely trying to gaslight her into thinking that none of this is real. It's just he's able to find plausible explanations of how you can explain a lot of the supernatural going-ons. I'm surprised at the amount of times that people didn't believe people. And I wonder, it made me question in myself in my real life if I would do that because Mm -hmm. Terry's daughters, after Terry was not around anymore, had a nightmare and the mom was like, you're dreaming, you're dreaming. She's like, no, there's someone in my bed. Bed, and she's like, there's no one there. And I'm like, just check. If my right? kid if my <laughs> kid said, I would probably like not think it was very plausible and say like, it was probably a dream. You're uh-huh. safe. You're okay. Let's check all the doors and windows. But she just left the wind blowing through the curtains like, there's nobody there. Go back to bed, you crazy. <laughs> Damn, woman, you're selling your kids short. <laughs> <laughs> there was a scene with Jeannie and Glory, Terry's wife, mm-hmm. where she said, when my son had nightmares and I dismissed missed it. He kept having nightmares. If I said, tell me about these dreams, what was it? He would make up his own mind about reality. Mm -hmm. But when you shut the door on things, that leaves no room for possibility and you're selling everything short. You have to look and put all your cards on the table and then assess for yourself what they are instead of just having this closed-minded of yes and no. And to David's point of be confident that there's nothing around and check there's nothing here, there's nothing here instead of just being like, go back to bed, tuck you in, babe. Mommy needs a smoke. <laughs> Mommy needs a smoke and a long, stiff drink. She's had a day. She had so many cigarettes after Terry died. <laughs> you know, Poor woman. Oh my gosh. Good for her not moving away, but how do you live your life after that in that re- town, re- you know? Which reminds wow. me of that quote is when the facts are filled with coincidences, don't dismiss those coincidences. That is the theme of this entire show. If you can't find a reasonable explanation for the unexplainable, maybe it's time to consider some of those other explanations. Well, like Ralph says to Terry right before he takes him to the arraignment, I'm as baffled by the conflicting evidence as much (laughs) as you are. You know, I also really love this scene. It kind of goes back to what I said about Jason Bateman earlier, how I said that this guy is actually a really good dramatic actor that you wouldn't think of if you go all the way back to the Arrested Development days. But they're back and forth in this scene. Amazing. And, you know, you have Ralph asking Terry, did you touch my son? And Terry goes into this long explanation about how Derek played for Terry's little league team. You know, he was small, but boy, did he have spirit. He's such a hard worker. And so he taught him how to bunt and he became a hero on the team because he was such a good bunter. And then he kind of ends it with like, so if you ask me if I touched your son, well, I sure hope I did touch your son. And I thought he got you there, Ralph. (laughs) This was one of the most moving things I think maybe I've ever seen. 
I think Jason Bateman is so natural and realistic. It wasn't overacted at all. I was so in the moment with this and it made me respect him so much. I already did. I mean, I'm getting chills thinking of it, to be honest. It was such a beautiful, beautiful monologue, really. It was a theatrical monologue. We don't get a lot of that on film where it's one person talking for two minutes and no other shots from different angles or anything. You're just watching him speak to you. Everything that he says, how he describes it, the nicknames for the kid and how he went from being bullied to people would cheer his name, his nickname, Push It. It was cute because you can, to me, it was so realistic. I could see that in real life that they call him Push It now. I was just very moved by this and I thought it was fantastic and it just took my breath away. I had to pause and take a moment to really take that scene in. And I think that was a turning point for me of I am all in on this because the acting between the two actors and just that scene as a whole was was fantastic. What a great way for uh, Jason Bateman to um, direct himself and then following it up with the shootout, which people don't realize are like very difficult scenes to shoot because everything needs to be like perfect down to the last detail. And they even got to put like squibs for like CGI effects for the blood to come out and everything. There's a pretty big team working on a scene like that. And then you see him as he's dying and and he's looking up at Ralph and his wife is there. Ralph is there. And and what are the last things he says before he dies? It's like, I didn't do it. I didn't kill him. If you're dying and that person tells you that they didn't kill somebody, they probably didn't kill somebody. I don't know. That's just me. (laughs) Maybe I'm wrong on that. (laughs) I think it was more of like, less about wanting to prove his innocence and more about preserving his relationship with Ralph. That he wanted him to know, if he didn't before, that it's not about him going to jail, obviously, anymore. He doesn't care. And he knows his family knows he didn't do it. But he wants Ralph to know, man to man or whatever, that there's no way that I would do that. There's a lot of characters in the show. I guess another main character would be considered Holly Gibney. And so Holly Gibney, what's interesting about the character itself is that there's actually another show that features Holly Gibney called Mr. Mercedes. Mr. Mercedes was this show that was on the Audience Network, a channel that I assume nobody knows that they maybe have. <laughs> But but it ran for three seasons before getting canceled. It stars uh, Brandon Gleason. It has Holly Gibney played by Justine Lupe. In the novels, Holly Gibney is a white woman. For the show, Jason Bateman, who served as an executive producer, said that he really wanted Cynthia Reveal in this show. And I don't blame him. I mean, if you can get your hands on great talents, then you just make the adjustments necessary to fit the character that you want them to play. And that's what they did here with Holly Gibney. This is a really cool character because sometimes when people write these characters, they can almost seem like overpowering. But with her, there's still like things that she doesn't know, even though she seems like she's this person who would know the answer to everything. She actually doesn't have the answer to everything. She even doesn't even know her own height. I thought that was really good that there was still like holes in her knowledge that are almost as unexplainable as her unexplainable savant like memory and perceptive capability. Another fantastic choice. Casting choice, making her a woman of color, everything. I think she Mm. plays it beautifully. This character has that element of being cartoonish or unbelievable or over the top, as you kind of mentioned. But she's very realistic with her quirks and how she plays them. And you're just immediately drawn to her. You just like her immediately. You love her immediately. And there's a warmth to her while still being very calculated and the way that she sees the world and she's just 
just kind of cold in her and methodical in her thinking process, but she's also very warm in how she allows the thoughts to enter and how she processes them, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. She is very methodical and very drawn to facts and figures, but at the same time, she was the one that yet so easily was able to latch on to the idea that this could be something supernatural and magical. As much as you want to think like Raph was your driving force now, it was Holly. I mean, once Holly appears on the screen, she really kicked off the investigation. She is the molder to his really, really close-minded and reluctant Scully. She was the first one who's actually following the evidence out of all of these seasoned cops, figuring out what was going on. She was able to figure out that Terry Maitland ran into this entity who was masquerading as a nurse at his um, father's nursing home, which was Heath Hofstetter, which Heath Hofstetter got in touch with the entity when he was in New York, who he thought he was having some super fun times with Maria Carnell, who's now in Rikers, all serving time for the similar crimes against children. That whole sequence of events of her piecing everything together was brilliant. It's probably my favorite moment of the whole miniseries. Because even though you can piece that all together like she did, it still comes down to the question of, then what the hell are we dealing with? Then if you say supernatural force, then you're like, I don't know about that, man. That sounds a little crazy. Well, you enter into that discussion in real life. There are some policemen and detectives that are okay with contacting outside sources and some not. Whenever there's Mm -hmm. a missing persons case, there's always the element of, do we listen to these psychics that are calling us with Mm -hmm. tip lines? And some people are so closed off to that. And there are instances where they're not, and they maybe obviously don't have the exact answers, but it leads them to a clue or leads them down a path where it's helpful to the investigation. And there are some policemen that want that help and other policemen that are like, ah, they're quacks. And Mm -hmm. so this kind of explores that element of, are you okay with things that are non-traditional helping your investigation? If help is help, then why wouldn't you allow it to? I mean, I'm not going to go into the discussion of advocating that psychics are real or anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. But- You reach that point of if you're deadlocked and you have no leads, what is the harm of you're not you don't necessarily need to bring them on trial or anything. Mm -hmm. But if they have something to say, you might just listen to it and give it equal weight as any other tip line because somebody else could call the tip line and just make something up. So what's the difference of one person saying something that's untrue and somebody else saying something that's untrue? And see, that's the risk, because say that tip does pay off, it leads to the recovery of the child or the child's body. And you get your killer. You know the defense is going to put the detective on the stand and say, how'd you reach this conclusion? Then they'll bring in the psychic. And that's the fear, I think, for most police departments. It's like, in DA, says, how are we going to explain this to a jury? I don't think necessarily, because they could call, they could say, we got an anonymous tip line to look over here. And then we looked over there and then you follow it with facts. I don't think (laughs) that you need to put the psychic on the stand. Yeah, I agree. But it it does lead... And, and similarly to everything that was just discussed, Holly does get guided towards this woman who first, like, they talk about the boogeyman, Baba Yaga. Oh, cool. And, and, and that's when she's finally like, maybe that's what I'm dealing with. And you kind of get chills because she's in her bathtub 
and she's like researching it at the same time. And Mm -hmm. I could just think if I was in that moment, I would be getting chills and I would be feeling like some sort of entity is watching me or something. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because by that point, you don't know what you're dealing with if that's what you believe is the cause of that. She had to look for outside help. She stumbled upon outside help to kind of guide her into this realm of possibility that the outsider who is committing these murders is some sort of supernatural entity that has been told through many cultures what we've grown to believe is actually not true. It's just so that we can get our kids to behave could actually be true. Like sometimes the truth gets tied into folklore and Mm -hmm. that's actually a mistake that happens in storytelling. So Mm -hmm. I thought that was actually a really clever way to build up this character. Her whole investigation, because it's not just the child that gets murdered, it's just the amount of grief and tragedy that surrounds that particular town. Because as we've seen the first two episodes, you have the mother who has a um, nervous breakdown that leads to a heart attack. The son tries to go and kills Terry Maitland, and then he gets shot by Ralph. Dad tries to hang himself. Now he's in a coma that won't wake out of it. Then you go to the Hofstetter case where his mother drives into a um, telephone pole. They experience amount of trauma. It's just a cancer. It just needs a spark and it just spreads. It'll become generational trauma because that'll always be carried with the next generation. I think the whole Holly Gibney's character was perfect to exemplify. Don't dismiss things that make sense. She was rooted in facts constantly. She said that two things can't be in the same place at the same time. So everything, as you mentioned, Romeo, like she was the one that did the detective work. She Mm -hmm. didn't make up links. She didn't say like they're magically linked. Like everything was based on fact. Everything was based off of true things that happened and reality. But she allowed herself to explore possibilities because the supernatural possibilities made sense, tied the facts together Mm -hmm. when they wouldn't otherwise. That's the point I'm driving at is not necessarily going to hocus pocus readings or anything like that or psychics, but being open to the possibility of things that are unconventional if they make sense and if they follow facts. She put herself out there in that meeting. She said, you think I like going out there and saying all those things that I said and having people cuss me out? She knew exactly what she was putting herself in, but she followed the evidence and this is what the evidence gave her. These are the conclusions that have resulted from all of that evidence. And if she had better oversight, they probably would have shut her down a lot sooner. Or I mean, Mm -hmm. I shouldn't say better oversight. They would have shut her down almost immediately. And I love how she was explaining what her childhood was like and how all these psychologists uh, all examined her and everything. And they all came to the same conclusion, which was, fuck if I know. (laughs) Which was a great way of just saying, like, there's no answer for me. So if there's no answer for me, how can we exclude something like this? Yeah, I thought there was a good correlation there and a justification as to why her character would lead to such a direction and conclusion. Are there any other supporting characters, Kelly, that you think are worth noting? This is the perfect transition because the supporting character of Andy, who becomes Holly's like love interest, was the cutest thing on the planet. And I loved it. I loved it so much. And I just wanted them to like get married and have babies and weird babies together. And it was kind of unconventional and unexpected, but it was so natural and it was just so cute. And I love them. And it was another great cast. I only know him from House of Cards, I believe. I thought he was a great match. I thought it was so cute that he was intrigued by her. I thought that it was so cute that he was so invested in the investigation. So he kind of like wanted to do it because it was interesting, but he kind of wanted to do it to help her. I thought it was fantastic. He's like this 
adorable like boy scout you know mm-hmm. <laughs> what did he tell her that like his heart is pure or something like that <laughs> when, i don't remember but it was adorable, it was uh, adorable. i wish i wrote down the exact line that had me like laughing out loud when he said it, it was like this guy such a big dork i don't know but she loved it yeah she was charmed by him they were a sweet couple and yeah he was one of the characters that I was like, please don't kill him. Please don't kill him. Please don't oh, kill it was him. terrible. I think wow. everybody felt it. They got you in the heart from the beginning of that, the end scene, which we'll get to. But I think they were just kind of like, and here's the where they like twist the knife in you. Yeah, it was him and and Jeremy Bob as Alec Pelly, who was Howard's oh, yeah. uh, partner. If I had a like character generator of what a private detective probably looks like, it would be <laughs> Alec Pelly. Kind of big, but not overweight. Has the mustache, slick back hair, talks about how he reads a lot. He's like good at his job. Like, yep, yep, like, yeah, this guy's a private investigator. <laughs> right. What did he say? He's like, I taste copper pennies when people are going to die. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Back when my toe last tore in Iraq. <laughs> yes. And I'm thinking, like, I expected that shit to come out of like a Vietnam vet, like, yeah. not like that close of a war. I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah, but he's a little bit younger. Yeah, this guy's probably like in his what, late 30s early 40s you know mm-hmm. hard to tell with that mustache but and then when the ninth episode closes with him getting headshot i was like no oh. <laughs> it's like how could you do this to me <laughs> oh it was a perfect way to start it because he was the one that was like i know i'm gonna die so i don't want to go and then he's like okay i'll go and then the first yeah. one to die i yeah, found I the like quote his... i have the strength of 10 because my heart is pure <laughs> But you get it. They're both kind of like awkward, but like in a way that is perfect for each other. Cutest couple. My favorite television couple from the Outsider, Stephen King novel. That's a good pickup line right there. You know, <laughs> find the right right person to use it on. So other supporting characters. I mean, um, Yul Vasquez as Jonas Sablo. He just has this presence to him that is like, yeah, of course, this guy is a lieutenant. Of course, this guy is in charge. And he just felt so real. Like I see Yul Vasquez and I'm like, yeah, I know a guy like that. And Bill Camp as how. Howie Solomon. It's like, yeah, I can believe that this guy is a lawyer, you know, and Bill Camp's kind of come onto the scene a little late in his career, like big time over the last 10 years. Yeah, he's just a solid performer as well. But Patty Considine, like, I think he's the one who surprised me the most because I never could imagine that he could play such a like down on his luck, petty criminal type of character, Mm -hmm. but also playing like this creature that eats children and takes control of people to do his bidding. It was a really great dual performance on his part. Yeah, the entire cast was fantastic. I loved every single person. Yeah, Sablo, the detective, as you mentioned, total sensei. He's like your uncle, the warm but really stern kind of guy. I love that he kind of grounded it in a different way, that he was so tied to culture and religion and was so unafraid to do it, and yet he had that kind of lieutenant position of power. Mm -hmm. So I thought they balanced that out really well. The lawyer, Howie, fantastic. He just fit. You believed him. Everything he said everything he did was brilliant. Claude Bolton, played by Patty Considine, as you mentioned, that casting was fantastic too, because it had to be, you know, this guy that works at a strip club and then the outsider, like he was the face of this thing that we've been hunting for the whole time, this like creepy creature. Yeah, his his range was excellent to be able to pull that off, I think. And when he sees himself in like the final scene, so mm-hmm. you get like both of them facing off together and both of them were so realistic. 
fantastic. And by the way, they shot on location when they did the cave scenes, which I thought was really cool. They spent a week doing that. That's pretty rare to do, especially for a TV series mm-hmm. to shoot on location in a cave. And dangerous, like. too. <laughs> I would have been scared that I would have been one of those stupid boys that didn't listen to their dad and then killed everyone in town. Right. <laughs> I would be scared that that happened to me. Like, we can't shoot in here, guys. I always love like, that coincidence of the bear cave caving in. And him perfectly choosing Claude. I always found that the most weirdest coincidence of that whole thing. I'm confused. You're saying that it was a stretch for him to be at the caves? That it just so happens that the entity chose Claude, who had a personal connection to another tragedy that happened in that town. I guess yeah, I so- just thought Terry scratched Claude and then Claude. Mm-hmm. Maybe they wouldn't have gone to the caves. It was kind of like a not well-known thing. I think it's just because Claude went back home. Yeah, I just thought it was like a weird little like Stephen King coincidence thing that it'll work better in the book. But when you see it played out on the screen, it's just like, really? I guess I agree that I didn't necessarily like the back in time to see that happen. I would have been fine if you just told me the tragedy happened. I didn't need the kids in sepia tone, you know, going in there. I don't really take issue with it because none of like none of the other characters had past tragedy. Tragedy came with them with the outsider. Mm -hmm. So this was the only one that really had something prior. And they did mention that no one really talks about it or knew about it. There wasn't like an official grave or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So I didn't really take issue with that. Well, there was a flood that washed up all those graves. So Kelly, are there any high points that we didn't touch on that you want to mention? I would be curious about what you you guys thought about Glory's response to Holly Gibney's presentation because the moment that she tells everybody everybody has different reactions and Terry's wife I am mixed I had a different reaction the first time through that I watched it than I did the second time totally understand her reaction I don't feel that she was out of line per se because it's been what three weeks roughly when when she was told this whole thing of, of Holly's findings so I think she had every right to be completely upset set and react the way that she reacted. I felt that way the first time I watched it and the second time I watched it. She's been on the outside the entire time, so she doesn't she doesn't know anything that's going on with the investigation. All she knows is that in her heart, she knows that her husband didn't commit these murders. And also the fact that it was impossible, really, <laughs> that he right. committed these murders. Yeah, I think she says the best. So you're going to tell me the fucking boogeyman committed these crimes? How the hell is that going to clear my husband's name? Is a reason reasonable response to what she just hear because for someone in her state where she's losing work her kids can't go to school she's a pariah and all her hopes is for this investigation to clear his name so they can have some sort of semblance of a normal life in this town and this was the big explanation the boogeyman I, I guess it was reasonable and someone definitely Definitely needed to have that reaction and it couldn't have come from anybody else because Ralph would not have had. He would have probably been firm in what he believed, but he wouldn't have had the emotional arc that she did. But I guess I knew where she was coming from, but I was guess disappointed in the same way that she was dismissive with her kids. And I Mm -hmm. thought like, don't you want to clear his name any way possible? And yes, maybe from the viewpoint of the public, this might be like a laughingstock situation. But as long as they have something internal that they can agree that Terry didn't do it and find a way enough evidence to say we have enough conflicting evidence 
to say that Terry didn't do it. Wouldn't she at least be open or positive to that? I don't think she's in the right state of mind, though. I think you're talking about someone who, like I mentioned, all her hopes are on the fact that they find a real killer. Someone they can arrest, arraign, and try for that murder to clear his name. There's no real evidence. It's just this intangible boogeyman. There's there's not like a name or a face that they can go, okay, now we can find this person. We can have other law enforcement look. It's like, no. It's a supernatural entity. Can you even put on trial? And then again, and then you mentioned that, how do you explain it to the public? Because that's great. You know in your heart and your kids that their father and your husband didn't do it. But how do you get everyone else to believe that too? So I think there's a lot of different factors and she's still grieving. Yeah, and her grief comes from a place of anger more than mm-hmm. actually a place of sympathy. So absolutely. Um, yeah, like Romeo said, like her head space is just not there to be even comprehend mm-hmm. everything that she heard to be plausible. I totally understand that perspective you're saying for sure. I guess and- that was the issue of her continuance to because she rightfully so was mad at Ralph but I feel like there was a time where she just didn't let it go and she was getting in the way of him helping her find the killer because mm-hmm. there was a point where he kind of said like look my bad but now I'm helping you and she conceded and ultimately said you're the only person I trust that would be able to find a solution so in my mind I thought she would give a little bit more leeway to yes I'm mad at you and you did the wrong thing but you're also trying to make up for it so maybe I should have some understanding. But I understand it's kind of hard to accept given everything that she had been through in that moment. And especially being blindsided by something like that would have an emotional reaction for sure. You raise a really interesting point there. They definitely could have gone with either direction. I feel like you've mentioned everybody. So I feel bad not mentioning Jack Hoskins, ultra aggressive, hyper unhinged guy to carry the outsider for a while. Mm -hmm. So if there's a trope that runs through all of Steve Stephen King's work is the Jack character. The one he loses, basically slowly loses his shit and goes on a killing spree and maniacally laughs. That is a trope. <laughs> there is a character like that in almost every part of his work. So I was not surprised. I was counting down the minutes. Well, it was actually pretty clever of them to explain his background of who he is. Like he always wanted to be a sharpshooter, goes to the military, top of his class to be a sniper, and then goes to the psych evaluation and what happens? He didn't pass. He's so just they kind let of... him into the police force with all the civilians? <laughs> right. And by all accounts, it seems like he's liked enough at the police force. Like people don't mind working with him, even though they can admit that he's a bit of an asshole. But yeah, I mean, partner. <laughs> yeah. So but no one would ever seem to get the indication that he would be like this person who could be a mass murderer. No one could believe it. Right. But unfortunately, because of his and not just because of his background in the military, but because of how how he was raised with the overbearing mother. He was vulnerable and and he was able to be taken advantage of and he had to do those terrible things. And, you know, there were a lot of moments I I just felt so bad for him. He was just, he was in so much pain. And I really like the makeup they did for the back of the neck. I thought that looks gross and so simple, but so effective. And at the end of it all, you know, you see him with a big lump on his face because he got stung by the, or he got bit by the the rattlesnake.
again. He's able to put himself out of his misery, not before he takes out so many bodies. But I interpret that moment when he's shooting all of them. It's like it's weird. It's like he doesn't want to do it. But at the same time, he's kind of living out his dream of what he wanted to be in the military. That's how I interpreted him of being like laughing hysterically because he's just kind of like, this is the worst thing I could ever do in my entire life. I don't want to do this. But at the same time, look how great of a sharpshooter I am. They were wrong about me. <laughs> I was the one thing that annoyed me. I'm like, of course, he's going to set the quote unquote trap, puncture the gas tank and <laughs> light it on fire with a shot. God damn it. Top of his class, Romeo. Top of his class. <laughs> I'm like, that's some Fortnite shit. I don't like it. <laughs> Kelly, would I assume that the pilot is the one episode you would show someone to get them interested? I assume so. This seems like you need a lot of buildup, especially being like a mini series. They pack a lot in. Mm -hmm. So I think if you went out of order, I don't know that there would be the same effect because you just, as we mentioned before, you have to kind of be vigilant and watching all the facts as they pile up to build the story. So I think you would just have a lot more questions if you tried to dive in any other way. Well, were there moments that you ever had your doubts about the show? I don't think so. I'm usually pretty when something hooks me, I'm in. And there wasn't enough seasons or anything to make me think like, oh, they're losing momentum or it was better in the beginning. I think that they did a good job wrapping it mm -hmm. up. Because it's such a slow burn, is this something that you would say, how did you watch it? Did you watch it week to week or was it something that you were watching multiple episodes in one sitting? How did you approach that? I think I watched it week to week. I couldn't okay. let things pile up. And I think that's how it should be. I think this mm -hmm. is definitely a pace yourself kind of show. It's very heavy, a lot to think about, a lot to take in. So I don't think it would pack the same. This is definitely like a let it sit with you <laughs> with the dread and everything mm -hmm. and the anticipation and anxiety. I think it, I think it's better if you let it sit. I tried binging it several times to prepare for this episode and I couldn't do it. I found it too hard to just jump to one episode to another because I just had to sit with the information and plus it's not made to be binged like kelly said you need to sit with this because binging it i missed a lot yeah and i think that goes with the whole mystery genre in general i think you do want that week because you need time to unravel the clues that the show is presenting and to just kind of decompress of the dread that kelly mentioned a lot of mystery shows sort of have that element and i think that's another reason why mayor of east town was also mm -hmm. extremely successful for hbo we're taking it week by week yeah dropping all these episodes in one sitting, I just don't think it would hit the same. No, um, this is a show that you definitely like if you were watching it way too week, you would want to revisit and watch it again. Because I feel like each episode deserves a second reviewing. We got an explanations of the entity, but I kind of had to pause and sort of read the text too. And even something as like the scene when Ralph thinks he's dreaming and talking to his son, there's a moment where you have to ask yourself, like, well, is that his son or is that the entity? Because of all the things that leading up to it can make you believe that this is the entity reaching out through Ralph through his son. It's tough because at one point you think, what is this entity? Is it just like it can do whatever it wants or are there limitations to its power? Yeah. And that's something that I wanted more information on. On. Sure, but sometimes you don't get all the answers. I know. You know what I mean? And, and, and the I'm okay with it. give us the answers and the characters yeah, shut right. it out. God damn it. <laughs> it's a mystery, Romeo. We can all agree that we need to savor the child murder as it happens over yes. time instead of rushing it. Yes. <laughs> 
even that scene alone, you know, it circles back to the series finale when you realize, like, there is the entity using Ralph's son again against him. Or is it again? I don't know. It's tough because Ralph seems to believe, nah, it wasn't him. But now he's open to the possibility that if he does see him again in a dream, that it will be him. Yeah, I don't know. There's something beautiful about that. In conclusion, it's more of a thinker than I expected it to be. Mm-hmm. I thought that was pretty cool. It's not something that I expected to get out of the show, especially a Stephen King adaptation. <laughs> that <laughs> was definitely a, a unique end too, with the shape shifting of the pace of the faces mm-hmm. after the outsider was kind of like dying out. That was such a trip, a weird thing. Is there other material to enrich the show's viewing experience? I guess the novel. Yeah, you could try the novel. There are differences between some of the characters. I know that Richard Price who was a showrunner. I know he changed up some of the character names. I read some articles about some differences and just very subtle differences. But I think the big one, like we talked about earlier, was that killing off Ralph's son for the show, which I think we agree, all agree, that was a good choice to Mm -hmm. make that decision. And another little change that they made about Holly Gibney in this show that's different from the novel is that Holly Gibney is in multiple Stephen King novels. She's in what's known as the Bill Hodges trilogy, which is Mr. Mercedes, Finders Keepers, and End of Watch. And she's also in, was it a novella, Romeo? If it yeah, that wasn't published, but that got published. It's part of the collection called If It Bleeds. Yeah, so Bill Hodges is actually in The Outsider very briefly, but they cut him out for the show. I guess they just wanted Holly to be more independent, mm-hmm. be her own private investigator, which I think was a good choice. I don't think there needed to be an inclusion of Bill mm-hmm. Hodges. But there are those books if people want to read them and get like more background about who Holly Gibney is as a character. One thing that I noticed in like the inside the episodes, they talked about how Holly Gibney actually spent some time in a mental hospital, which I don't recall them mentioning in The Outsider in the show. I, I don't know if you guys recall that at all. Like, I, I know re- she went through all those experiments, but I don't think they ever mentioned her living in a mental hospital. I don't recall yeah. that. Well, of course, we don't anticipate a reboot. But Kelly, do you want a continuation of The Outsider? I want all of it. Give it to me. I'm ready for it. But <laughs> it might be hard if it wasn't the same characters. So I think I'm open to a continuation because this one seemed like it wouldn't be the same exact situation or scenario. It might be new, like a true detective kind of thing, finishing one and starting a different element of it. But I would definitely be intrigued if it's on. I will. I would watch it. Would you want Holly to be the forefront, per se, like if they're bringing characters back or circle back to Ralph? Or I know you say you want anything that they would throw, but what would, what would be like... <laughs> your idea of how they should bring it back. I don't know. Reboots are always very difficult for me or continuations. You know, when something's so good, you just kind of want to leave it and don't want to touch it. But I feel like I trust them because as I mentioned before, I'm not typically drawn to Stephen King. I'm not typically drawn to unexpected supernatural elements. I usually want to know ahead of time what I'm getting into. But it seems like they did a great job with that. They seem like they did a great job with casting. They seem like they had good intuition of translating from the novel to screenwriting for this miniseries. So I think I kind of trust whatever they bring in. If they decide to have some of the same characters or if they want to take a different route, I think I would be open to watching it for sure. As we wind down here, Kelly, briefly discuss who you think could enjoy The Outsider. I don't know. I think it has elements of of a lot of different genres that people would enjoy. But I'd say if you like mystery and drama intense drama and don't shy away from, I guess, raw things, like just like the violence of it. 
that you would probably enjoy this. I think anybody who's interested in the slow burn mystery mm-hmm. would enjoy this show. And I think if anyone who has reservations about Stephen King work, like I mentioned earlier, I think this one's pulled back enough where it doesn't get too weird. At least that's how it was for me. I know everybody is different. Like it's character studies. Mm-hmm. Like That's mm-hmm. the way you should go in. It's a show about the characters, not so much the plot. Good point. Yeah, because we did talk so deeply about many of these characters and I I mean, that's just, again, a testament to the show and the writing. Kelly, do you have any suggestions for things that might be similar to The Outsider that people might also enjoy? I think the only things I would bring up are shows that you guys have touched upon, which are other HBO series, The True Detective and Mare of Easttown. Both kind of have that dark mystery element to them. And I think if people like the whole procedural, trying to figure out the mystery and the whodunit, I guess you could say, The Night Of, which is another yes. work by Richard Price. Yes, yeah, Excellent, man. Oh, so, so good. Yes, excellent Um, and excellent. You mentioned that earlier in the show, and that's another great um, series, too. We also mentioned earlier Mr. Mercedes. People want to know what that is really about. It's a retired detective who's still haunted by an unsolved case of Mr. Mercedes, who claimed 16 lives when he drove a stolen Mercedes through a line of job seekers at a local job fair. And also coincides with like a brilliant young psychopath who emerges to focus his attention on this same retired detective. And so what begins as like an online cat and mouse game becomes like a deadly real life consequences as it increasingly desperate psychopath. He becomes like bent on leaving his mark on the world. So I heard good things about it. I heard now that it's actually on Peacock. Mm -hmm. Peacock bought it out to have it on their streaming service. All three seasons, it got canceled. Holly Gibney's in the show. So Castle Rock, which combines the mythological scale and intimate characters of storytelling of King's best loved works, weaving an epic saga of darkness and light, played out on a few square miles of Maine woodland. The reason I bring this one up is because it captures a lot of the same mood that The Outsider likes to capture. So if people liked that sort of dread intention, Castle Rock might be right up their alley. It just kind of popped into my head the undoing on HBO. That's the newer one, kind of like the mayor of east town it came out late last year i guess and that's kind of similar a dark feeling kind of murder situation where you kind of are stuck with did this main character do this thing or not i haven't had a chance and to watch people it were mad about that ending that's all i know about that series oh really yes people were not happy with that ending oh, i was wow. one of those people but as a whole the series was very strong then i also recommend the leftovers it has similar themes about people dealing with the aftermath of the unexplained and how they deal with it. It's three seasons also on HBO. It tends to lean on the religious aspects of being raptured, at least the iconology of it, but it's not specifically the reason what's going on. So another interesting show that makes you as the audience start to question what really happened. Excellent recommendation. I loved that show as well. Is there only three seasons? I felt like that took eight seasons of my life. That first season took 10 years of my life. It takes so much, but that's what I appreciated it about it is like pulls no punches, just leaves you like sobbing and like existential crisis after every episode. I loved it. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes you need that. The emotional. And then another show I thought that was 
vaguely similar is Evil. First season aired on CBS. Now it's moved over to Paramount Plus. So it follows a skeptical forensic psychologist who allies with a Catholic Sumerian is basically someone who's on track to become a priest in the Catholic Church and a technology coordinator to investigate purported supernatural incidences and they sort of interconnect these cases. Sometimes they use, sometimes they don't. It has a stellar cast. Katya Herbers who, um, I know her from the second season of Westworld. Um, Mike Coulter, he was Luke Cage in the Marvel TV show. Mm. Kurt Furler as a um, colleague of Christian Bouchard, who's played by Herbers. And Christine Lottie as Christian's mother. Oh, Michael Emerson is the main antagonist of that show, which of course you may recognize him from Lost as the leader of the others and person of interest. And it's from the creators of The Good Wife and The Good Fight. Really tongue-in-cheek show. And it actually does scare the crap out of me. We did it. We talked about The Outsider. We didn't talk about if we each had an El Cuco in our growing up childhood, though. I didn't. My parents didn't use stories to scare me, fortunately. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mine was just a plain old devil because I'm Catholic, so. We didn't necessarily have it as like my mom would scare me with it, but it was something that you knew existed or something that you had heard of. But you guys, like the boogeyman, you never Mm -hmm. talked about the boogeyman? You know, I knew of the boogeyman when I was a kid, but I couldn't tell you like how I even knew of the boogeyman, Mm -hmm. but I was never scared of it. The idea of it never scared me. There was a lot of possession storylines on soap operas that I was exposed to. And that's what scared me the most. Now I was seen on TV by my grandmother telling me, now you better go pray so it doesn't happen to you. So there were elements. I think most of my stories probably came from other kids. Yeah, my parents didn't really scare me either. We definitely had grew up in a Catholic house. So we definitely had don't do that because the devil's going to get you. But but (laughs) nothing creeping around. But from other kids and things I was aware of, we called it El Cucuy. Similar to El Cuco. Very interesting. At least that's been passed on to me from my, the Italian side. I don't know. Anything. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know anything in Portuguese folklore. If there's anything like, like that, I either. Mean, I'd have to look that up. Final thoughts. That's what we'll have to save Romeo for final thoughts. I know. It's final thoughts. I kind of feel like I missed out because also Mr. Uh, La Llorona, the crying woman. Yeah, La Llorona. I was going to mention her too. No, La Llorona yeah. was someone, like I said, it wasn't necessarily like to scare me, but it was something that we heard about and maybe from other kids. That one was some a woman who lost her children yes. or something like that. And so she would kidnap others other children and then drown them in the river to like make up I mean, for. I have local tales. I feel like we should have talked about this at the beginning and then all done like our recordings in darkness and candles. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kelly, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, we're really glad you came back. We're really glad that you joined us during our our spooky October month mm-hmm. that we're doing here. I know I didn't say that in the very beginning, but yeah, this is part of our series of horror slash thriller slash mystery slash dread slash any anything that spooks people and talking about our first miniseries which this turned out really awesome this was so much fun all right listeners stay tuned for final thoughts and mailbag
Welcome back. Loved doing this episode of The Outsider. We did mention that this was the first miniseries that we recorded. That is true, but it obviously isn't the first miniseries we released, considering last week we released A Haunting a Hill House. That was a scheduling change on our part because of the hype around Midnight Mass. We wanted to get The Haunting a Hill House a week earlier to feed off of that hype. And I don't regret it because that was a great episode. And this one, Romeo, this one really surprised me. I thought that it would be a good discussion, but I thought what wound up being possibly good discussion turned out to be a great discussion. I loved having Kelly on again. I thought we all had a really great back and forth talking about these characters and talking about folklore. It was great. Uh, There's nothing more I can say now. I just thought it was really great. What did you think? I enjoy talking about it. I'm not the biggest Stephen King fan and neither is Kelly, which we still enjoyed it. And I think that says a lot about the performances and the way they laid out the story. No, I'm right there with you guys. It was just pretty cool to see three people who aren't Stephen King fans be able to love a Stephen King adaptation and have so much to talk about. Like, I really thought this final edit would be about 45 minutes, but it turned out to be an hour because there were just things in the discussion where I'm like, oh, I can't cut that. That's really good. Oh, I can't Mm -hmm. cut this either. This is really good. I love all our episodes, but for whatever reason, this one, it's to me, I think is one of my favorites. This is a total standout for me, and I hope that the listeners enjoyed it as much as I did. We don't have any facts to follow up on, but Kelly did ask us toward the end of the episode about boogeymen that were taught to us during our upbringings. Me and Romeo weren't really clear if we had any boogeymen related to our heritage. Romeo talking about his Italian side, me talking about my Portuguese side. So for the Portuguese boogeyman, it's basically the same thing as the Spanish boogeyman is the Coco or Coca. It's the mythical ghost monster equivalent to the boogeyman. Of course, Portuguese and Spanish, there's a lot of crossover and stories. So it just ended up working out that way. The interesting one here, and I can't wait to hear Romeo's perspective on this, is the Italian boogeyman, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is called, and I hope I get this right, Luoma Nero. It's a demon that can appear as a black man or black ghost without legs, often used by adults for scaring their children when they don't want to sleep, also known as a babao. Now, Romeo, what are your thoughts on the Italian boogeyman? Okay, here's a better explanation on Boogeyman Wiki that doesn't sound as problematic. He's just described as a tall man with an unseen face, heavy coat, and black hat. The purpose, according to this website, is to make children eat their dinner. Um, He hides under the tables and parents knock on the table to warn their children that the boogeyman is present and will take them away if they don't eat their dinner. No, I've never heard of it. I want this to be known. <laughs> yeah, no, I know you never heard of it. Yeah, and you're right. Let's get it in a recording. Let's get it out there <laughs> to the world. <laughs> so, yeah. so if you had your own boogeyman story that you want to share with us, you could do that at bingeessentials at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook. Just search for at binge essentials. You can also find us on Instagram at binge essentials. It's a great way to keep in touch with what's going on with the podcast. If you want to find me on Instagram, you can find me at David Rocha Binge. You can find Romeo at rmora02. You can find me on Twitter at David Rocha Radio, and you can find Romeo at rmora1. So now it's time to tease next week's episode. Next week's episode is Dead Like Me with Jamie Yinks. Romeo is a big fan of Dead Like Me. Jamie is also a fan of the show. I've never seen it before, so I watched it for the first time with in preparation of the podcast, and it was a fun episode that I hope you guys enjoy because it's not so much like a love fest as you would probably think like our past few episodes have been there are elements to the show we really enjoyed but
But there are elements in the show that we have a lot of questions about. And that is something that we really delve deep in with Dead Like Me. I will say this is probably our more historical TV deep dive that we've done in a, in a while. Yeah, because we, we found some stuff about the show that made us go like, that's why <laughs> yeah. this happened. Yeah. This yeah. is why this character disappeared. So come back next week for that as we continue our Halloween spooky season for the rest of October. And until then, want to thank you guys for listening. Catch you guys next week.